Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So you probably heard of the Paleo Diet, Primal Living, etc. It's got a whole bunch of different types of names. One of the driving forces behind this movement is a guy named Mark Sisson. He's got a website called Mark's Daily Apple. If you haven't been there, go check it out. There's a lot of great content on fitness and just health in general. Anyways, Mark's got a great uh, new book out called Primal Endurance. And if you're an endurance athlete, if you're on marathons, triathlons, do obstacle course races, this episode is for you. Today on the show, Mark and I are going to discuss some of the myths about training for endurance events. Some of those being, you don't need a carbo load, right? Have the big bowl of pasta the, the night before your event. In fact, that can actually hurt your uh, your progress and your performance. We also discuss how, you know, training for endurance events and how you probably shouldn't train as hard as you are training. In fact, you're gonna have to run slower than you think you should run and sometimes you may even have to walk. Uh, today on the show, Mark's gonna explain why that is and give specific ways examples, protocols on how to train, how to eat, what to do for recovery so you can have, you perform your best, not only perform your best, but enjoy your endurance sport for as long as you can. Uh, So great show. Make sure to check out the show notes after the podcast is over at aom.is slash sisson, where you can find links to resources and uh, things we mentioned throughout the show. Mark Sisson, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brett. Back after how many years? Uh, since 2009. It's a long time, pal. We've been growing. We have. You've grown phenomenally since then. Like last time we talked, uh, your blog, Mark's Daily Apple, had just gotten started, all about primal living. Um, and you're out with a new book uh, for endurance athletes, for people who do triathlons, marathons, long distance bicycling, those crazy people who do the ultra marathons. Um, it's called Primal and, Endurance. And the latest one, obstacle racing. Obstacle racing. I'm a big fan of the obstacle racing. Yeah. I'm, I, I don't like just running. I like being, I have my running interrupted with pegboards and the like. I'm hip. I mean, if, if, if that had existed, you know, 40 years ago when I started competing at an elite level, that would have been my sport, I guess. But anyway, yeah. here we are. Here you are. Yeah. But, so yeah, Primal Endurance. This is interesting because you're going back to your roots with this book. You started off uh, your career, your athletic career, as an endurance athlete. Uh, for our folks who aren't familiar with that, tell us about your background as an endurance athlete. What did you do? Uh, I was a, a distance runner, uh, primarily a marathoner, and uh, started out of necessity. I grew up in a small fishing village in Maine. I had to, had to hike or walk or run two miles each way to school. Um, and just figured that running would, would get me home faster. So I, I started running at, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old and joined the high school track team, wound up doing pretty well in the mile and the two mile events, um, rolled that over into college where I was captain of the cross country team, started doing road races in the summer, uh, got out of college, was, uh, good enough at running that I thought I would train for the 1980 Olympic trials. So I spent the next several years focused on running. Uh, putting in 100 miles a week for many years. Uh, got to be pretty good. I finished fifth in the U.S. National Championships in 1980. And um, so, yeah, I was, uh, I was down this path of, um, of human performance. But ironically, I started down that path with an eye toward improving my health and longevity. And as I got further and further down that path, it became fitter and fitter and more 
uh, able to able to run faster and compete at a high level, I found that my health was suffering, and that was a little bit of a disconnect because I'd assumed all along that the more you ran, the healthier you became, and the better your heart was, and the stronger your joints were, and so on and so forth. But that wasn't the case. So uh, at the end of uh, around 1980, I um, I was forced to retire from marathoning. My injuries. I had osteoarthritis, I had tendonitis, I had all sorts of injuries that had piled up, and I was getting sick a lot, and I had irritable bowel syndrome, and I was just a wreck, really. So I retired from that, that high-level competition and, and devoted kind of myself to figuring out ways in which I could, I could be fit and, and healthy at the same time. And, and that's what I've spent the last 36 years investigating and doing. And ultimately, I came to this point um, – about four years ago, where I realized there is this this convergence of technology now where we find that we can create the ultimate sort of high-performance athlete and not sacrifice health. And that became the impetus for my new book, Primal Endurance. Okay. And what's interesting is that Primal Endurance, it shows athletes how to, like you said, be the optimal athlete, but it breaks or shatters a lot of myths. It goes against the grain from what you've heard if you grew up in the 80s and 90s about what you need to do to be uh, an endurance athlete. And I, and I think it's interesting too, like you said you had these, you were you were fit, like you could run long distances quickly, um, but you felt terrible. And But this, this is something that's common in the endurance uh, world or was common is becoming less common now. Uh, I mean, what is it about endurance training, the way people typically do it, that makes them feel terrible? <laughs> well, first of all, it's this, um, you know, it's like a badge of courage to tell somebody you're a marathoner or an Ironman triathlete or, or some ultra runner that uh, people go, oh my God, you must, what discipline you must have and what strength you must have. And, and that's pretty much true because it, you're, it's half the time you're out there, most of the time you're out there, you are managing pain. You know, you're, uh, you're struggling through these workouts and you're, and you're and you're going to the well in these races, digging as deep as you can. Um, it's it's never, you know. I don't know of anyone who's an elite level racer who ever says, "Oh, I was having so much fun out there," right? Um, and yet you talk to elite basketball players, elite football players, elite soccer players. They'll tell you what a blast they were having on the pitch. But with endurance athletes, it's more of this um, stoic kind of uh, management of pain. And and it was an assumption that we all had that in order to race fast, you had to a train fast. B, you had to practice suffering. I mean, that was really what it was like in the, the mindset was, you know, if I didn't suffer today in my workout, the workout was not worth doing. And so for decades, we went out and we put all these miles in and we raced, we, we ran literally, literally as many miles as we could at the highest possible level we could with the heart pounding as high as we could sustain. Um, and with the joints being able to maybe keep pace uh, without getting injured. So it was really, what's the, you know, what's, what's the highest amount of pain threshold I can create for myself in my training and sort of practice that on a daily basis so that when I get into a race, I'll be able to, you know, recreate all this uh, uh, pain, but management, manage it in a, in a better way. And it's foolish to think that, that that's, that's kind of how we train. Now, ironically, we also, um, we, we, we sort of understood through conventional wisdom that, the way to fuel all this activity was to take in lots of carbohydrate because the understanding was that when you manage your carbohydrate intake and you manage your glycogen stores, that's how you become an elite racer. That's how you become a, better at, at, at racing at whatever level you're at. So that, that sort of begat this whole concept of carbo loading and all of the gel packs and all of the drinks, the, the pre-race drinks, the, the during race drinks and all that stuff was was basically contemplated to get more and more sugar into your system so that you could you could burn more glucose and sort of put off hitting the wall for as long as you could. Well, those two things, the, the intense mileage and the uh, focus on carbohydrates and particularly on sugar, kind of overlooked the, the, the main focus of what we should be looking at with endurance training, which is how do I manage glycogen by burning fat really well? How do I become more efficient at burning fat so that I don't have to put in a lot of carbohydrate, that I don't have to put in a lot of sugar? And once you realize that fat is the preferred fuel for humans in general, and that it becomes a preferred fuel for humans who are competing, uh, once you understand this, 
you can then begin to take on a program, a training program that reconfigures your fuel partitioning so that you get most of your energy from fat at reasonably high levels of output, uh, that you spare glycogen, that you don't put so much of this inflammatory carbohydrate and sugar and, and grain stuff through your, through your digestive tract and your body. And lo and behold, you become a more efficient runner because you're burning fat at a higher rate and you become a less injured runner because you're not getting that inflammation, that chronic inflammation that consistently goes with, with the training. And because you can do so on, on a, uh, on, on slower training, and we'll get to that a little bit. And it turns out that we were training at way too high, way too high a heart rate and too fast a pace to become efficient. The only way you become efficient at endurance training is to manage your heart rate in a, in a completely aerobic zone, which means at a much more comfortable pace. So now all these things come together. Now you're, you're actually, you, you become a better racer by training slower, uh, strategically, of course, uh, by adapting your, your, your diet so that you become better at burning fat. And when you become better at burning fat, you burn off your stored body fat. So now we get to the point where you've got an ideal body composition. So many runners I see at the beginning of a marathon, Brett, and they're like, seriously, dude, you got 25 or 30 pounds to lose and you're entering this marathon and you tell me you're training 30, 40, 50 miles a week. How come you're not losing the weight? Well, that's because they haven't become good at burning fat. So we we're training at a much kinder, gentler pace. We're eating the sorts of foods that encourage us to burn off fats. We're getting injured less often and sick less often because of this reduction in inflammation and, and oxidative throughput. And it all comes together to make for a strong, lean, fit, happy, healthy, productive athlete. Yeah, that's fantastic. There's a lot to unpack there. And I thought that was interesting, that statistic, because I've read that other, where, other places where they did a survey and they found that 30% of all marathon uh, participants, like they're overweight. Which is that crazy? You think like these like marathon, they can run 26 miles. They're probably the fittest people in the world, but a lot of them are overweight. Correct. And And they're overweight, by the way, they're they're overweight because they're stuck in this carbohydrate paradigm. And the way it here's how it plays out you know, you train really hard, but because you're not burning fat at a high level, you're still burning through all of your glycogen every every workout you do. Uh, You get home, the brain says, hey, we just uh, depleted all the glycogen. We better build back our glycogen stores, we better eat all the carbohydrate we can get our hands on. So you carbo-load that night. And then the next day you go, oh, well, I carbo-loaded. I better go out and train again, train hard. And it's this vicious cycle. Well, the brain sort is telling you to overcompensate by replenishing the carbohydrates after a fashion. And it gets to the point where every excess carb that you take in raises insulin and, and is sort of presumptively going toward fat stores once the glycogen stores are filled. And you have this this vicious cycle where you think, wait a minute, I just sweated off 500 calories today and, and, and every day for the last uh, you know year and a half. You're telling me I haven't lost any weight? What's wrong with this picture? Well, what's wrong with this picture is you haven't become good at burning fat. Yeah, the, the, that's the chronic cardio that you talk about exactly. in the book. Exactly. So let's, let's talk about, let's get into this difference. So the difference between aerobic and anaerobic training, because I think most people think, oh yeah, running, bicycling, those are aerobic activities and they think of like lifting weights as an anaerobic activity. But uh, what you argue in the book is that many endurance athletes who think they're training aerobically are actually training anaerobically. Right. So we're always doing a mix of aerobic and anaerobic um, energy production. So at the very lowest levels, it's 99% aerobic, using oxygen, using oxygen to burn fat. So walking around the house, uh, uh, easy, easy jogging, easy swimming, whatever, when your heart rate's just creeping up there, you're in a mostly aerobic zone. Uh, as you start to increase the speed, the pace, as you start to increase the workload, as the heart starts to beat harder, you enter a little bit more of an anaerobic contribution, and that is the, uh, the burning of glycogen uh, through a process known as glycolysis, glycolysis. And so there's a little bit of fat burning and then some glucose glycogen uh, burning. And as you increase the pace and increase the the rate of heart rate, it becomes less aerobic and more anaerobic. And that's that part that starts to, the anaerobic part is what we see when we start to build up lactic acid and we start to get out of breath because we can't, we, we can't keep up aerobically. We can't bring in oxygen enough to just do this with an aerobic oxygen-based uh, uh, level. So 
where we see so much happening with uh, with endurance athletes is because they can train at a high heart rate, uh, they choose to do so, thinking that at the higher heart rate that I can maintain in my training for an hour, hour and a half, whatever, the better that must be for me. But what it's doing is it's reinforcing this anaerobic type of training, which is that training which puts you into that lactic uh, acid buildup phase that that takes you away from the aerobic training. So the first sort of lesson that we learn in primal endurance is where's that sweet spot where I can train my heart at its highest possible rate, but still mostly aerobic. And it turns out that it's a number that's proven empirically over the last 20 years to be 180 minus your age, plus or minus a few beats based on genetics and 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 predispositions and and perhaps your 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 athletic history but 180 minus your age so in my case i'm 62 uh so 180 minus 62 is 118 so 118 is the highest heart rate that i should be holding in long uh endurance efforts if i'm on the bike if i'm hiking if i'm jogging if i'm um, you know wandering around the house quickly or whatever i'm doing 118 is that heart rate for me at which I'm putting mostly oxygen through my body, and I'm not entering into any anaerobic uh, contribution. Now, what a lot of people find is because they've trained so hard for so long that, and like I'm a person, I could, if I wanted to, Brad, I could go hold 165 beats a minute on the bike for 20 minutes or 30 minutes or maybe longer, but it's not efficient. At that, at that rate, I am not burning mostly fat. I'm burning mostly carbohydrate, and I'm, and I'm reinforcing that whole energy system of carbohydrate dependency, and I'm not becoming more efficient at burning fat. So with that 180 minus your age, which in my case is 118 beats a minute, that's the maximum heart rate that I can go at. Now, if I, people say, well, Mark, I tried your program, and I can usually run 730 miles, but you know, when I met, when I limited my heart rate, I wore a heart monitor, and I didn't let my heart get above, say, 140 for a 40-year-old. For a I was going like 13-minute miles. What's up with that? I can go a lot faster than that. Well, what's up with that? We just proved that you are not very good at burning fat. We just proved that you are not very aerobically efficient. So in Primal Endurance, in the book, we talk about one of the strategies for becoming more aerobically efficient is to limit your heart rate to that number. For most of your base training, don't exceed it. Um, if you do, not for, not for very long. Uh, and over time, you'll find that your efficiency improves. So that same person who was running 12 or 13 minute miles over time is now going, well, wait a minute. Now at, now at my 140 maximum heart rate, hey, I'm doing 10 minute miles or I'm doing 930s. And then a month later, wow, I'm doing 830s. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that they're doing eight minute and 30 second miles burning mostly fat, burning 97, 98% fat. So that when they go ramp up the next phase of their training to to become faster and and uh and more and, and more powerful if you will uh, they're starting at a much higher base of fat burning which will benefit them when they get in a hard workout or they get a race against somebody who's not as efficient as they are does that make sense that makes sense so you got to slow down to speed up in the long run i mean that's the mantra and it's it, it's counterintuitive at first but when you understand the biomechanics and the biochemistry of it uh, you can see that if we're talking about becoming more a more efficient fat burner and if we understand that fat is this preferred fuel that we want to tap into so that we can we can better manage our glycogen stores and spare glycogen because there is this science that suggests that once the muscles are out of glycogen you hit the wall so now if i'm if i'm running at the same pace as the competitor next to me but i'm burning uh, at the pace that we're at i'm doing i'm getting 80% of my uh, my energy from fat and 20% from glycogen and that person is getting 40% of his energy from fat and 60% from glycogen. At the same pace, who's going to run out of glycogen faster? He is. Now, so that, so if we if we go at the same pace, he'll die. He'll hit the wall before I do. But conversely, if I want to match his 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 fuel uh, uh, partitioning and I want to go 60% uh, or 40% fat and 60% glycogen, I'm going to be going a lot faster than he is from the get-go because I'm that much more efficient. Okay. And so I mean, I imagine this when people hear this and they put it into practice first, it's extremely frustrating. Like you might be doing a lot of walking during your If you're a runner, runs. yeah. Yep. Right. Or as we say on the bike, you may be doing some paper boy up the hill. Um, 
but uh, and that's zigzagging back and forth across the street with a with a bike full of papers back in the old days. I don't know if that means anything to your audience, but uh, it's a it's a cool visual for those of us who are over fifty. Um, but it basically, yeah, I've had so many people uh, report back to me exactly that. Wow, I was so frustrated when I first started doing this. It's like I I wasn't going that fast. I didn't feel like I was doing much, but I'll tell you what, after, you know, a month of doing this, I'm racing faster than ever and I'm not even doing any speed work. What's up with that? Well, what's up with that is you're racing, you're more efficient, you're burning more fat so that when you do get to the high end, you've got more glycogen to spare than the guy sitting right next to you who hasn't been training that way. This is fascinating. So before we get into the nutrition, because that's connected to this, let's continue with the training because one of the other things you talk about in primal endurance that sort of goes against the grain of what you traditionally hear in endurance sports is this idea of strength training should be an important part of an endurance athlete's programming and not just like any type of like i think most people when they think endurance athletes doing strength training they think maybe some barbell you know some dumbbells some lunges but you're recommending like barbell training like deadlifts and and uh squats i mean right so if you're a runner or cyclist it would be those uh the lower body stuff the 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 complex complex exercises like weighted squats and deadlifts. And the reason is uh, it's to develop uh, sustained power. So what happens in a race, uh, a couple things happen when you're, when you're competing, one of which is certainly that ability to uh, produce energy at a more efficient rate and to fuel the muscles. But the muscles still have to have the ability to withstand the, the demands of increased uh, output, whether it's uh, sprinting, whether it's uh, climbing hills as a runner or climbing hills as a cyclist. And what we see happening over time, particularly in the longer events, is that athletes may have 100% of their max power on the first hill, but then the second hill rolls around. And even though their energy production is, is reasonably good, the muscle fibers themselves are starting to tap out because they haven't trained for this ability to sustain power over time. Uh, and so we see cyclists who maybe climb the second hill at 75 or 80 percent of their max capacity or max power and then by the time the third hill rolls around they're at 65 percent so how do we how what, what can we do in terms of training to increase that ability to sustain power over the long haul and what we do is we load those those muscle fibers uh deeper and deeper we put more stress on them in a short period of time through specific things that we do in the gym for example uh we might do weighted squats and we might determine well what is my you know one rep max on a squat and let's just say if you're an endurance athlete it might be say 100 or 200 pounds shall we say well then we take 80 percent of your one rep max we call that 160 and instead of doing one rep and stopping or conversely instead of doing say um 80 or 100 pounds 20 or 30 you know t times uh, 10 reps times three sets and then walk away we take, a, we take a hybrid of that and we go, okay, 80% of your one rep max, we're going to do a couple of, we do as many as we can uh, right now, do a quick 10 second rest. Uh, don't, re, don't even re-rack the equipment or don't really walk away from it. Uh, do a couple more, uh, maybe take a, a short rest there, do a couple more. And we keep loading those fibers until we can't complete one more rep with perfect form and form being the sort of main arbiter here. So what we're doing is we're, we're loading the fibers and then we're backing off a little bit and then we're loading them again and backing off a little bit, but we're loading them maximally. So we are, we are recruiting fibers deeper and deeper into that muscle tissue to the extent that those fibers become able to handle uh, the power demands that may be called upon in uh, a sprint uh, halfway into a bike race or a, or a hill climb, a charge up the hill or Heartbreak Hill at uh, at the at the Boston Marathon or something like that. So these are we're, we're basically we're training the component parts of what a race consists of, but doing so in a way that rather than just practicing doing them, we are breaking them down. We're parsing the entire uh, the entire goal into its component parts, so that we're dealing with the aerobic efficiency. We're dealing with maximum sustained power. Uh, we'll talk later about sprinting and and how we look at sprints as a form of interval training and then ultimately we'll look at how the diet is important in in reconfiguring how we extract fat from uh from our stored body fat 
wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. So uh, how do endurance athletes uh, avoid the risk of bulking, right, while doing strength training? Because like, you know, on cyclists, runners, like every little bit, like if you, if you, sure you have more muscle and that muscle can do more work, but that's like more weight you have to carry around. Um, so how do you uh, address Well, first of all, that, yeah. So if we're doing lower body training in the gym, um, you're not, you know, you're not bulking up on top. So you're not really carrying around any extra weight on top. We're not having you do biceps curls and, you know, and lat pull downs and, uh, 
you know, deltoid raises and things like that. I mean, you can if you want to, but that's not the point here. The point here is, is how specific can I get in my, in the gym, in the weight training so that I'm building power and not putting on useless mass around my entire body. So when we're talking about doing uh, weighted squats or deadlifts, um, we're just talking about the leg muscles and you will not bulk up. It just, it's impossible because if you're doing the work running, uh, you're still going to be, you're still going to be, um, leaning out that muscle tissue. It's just that what we've done is we've worked on your power. We, we haven't worked on your size. We've worked on your power, right? So, so it's not an issue. Bulking up is not an issue. And I defy you to show me one, you know, one cyclist who has complained about, uh, bulking up because of the work he did in the gym. Most cyclists, you look at their quads, even if they're not doing gym work, their quads are pretty, you know, pretty, uh, big meat slabs because if, because of the, especially the sprinters, because of that work that they do. Right. So nothing you do in the gym is going to, um, hamper or hinder your, your ability to race efficiently. It's really about the power to weight ratio that we're developing. Um, cyclists in particular, you know, they look at this magic number of six watts per kilogram. And if you can get the six watts per kilogram over extended periods of time, uh, you're going to beat the guy ne- next to you, uh, given, uh, the same, you know, equipment and everything else. So l- let's talk about sprinting because that, uh, is an anaerobic activity. Um, so how does that help you? I mean, how does this fit in with the idea that, you know, we want to build an aerobic base, uh, in our, uh, endurance, uh, training. Right. So then sprinting comes in because uh, a couple of reasons. Um, number one, uh, sprinting is another way to um, to work on that uh, sustained power, that deep power. When we talk about sprinting, we're not so much talking about the old school of the intervals. And if you're a you know if you're a marathoner, you probably did a lot of um, half mile repeats or mile repeats or uh, really longer intervals that we wouldn't really call sprinting to begin with. And it was rare, at least when I was training, that a that a marathoner would do 100-meter sprints or 200-meter sprints um, because it was like, okay, how does that – that doesn't apply to what I'm doing in the marathon. I'm not – I'm never running that fast, so why should I train that fast? Well, the answer is because uh, what we're training is we're – first of all, we're, we're looking at how can we get the most effective workout with the least amount of, of pain, suffering, and sacrifice. We call it the MED, the Minimum Effective Dose. So when you're sprinting, if I can show you that by doing six to eight sets of 10 to 20 second sprints, all out after a warm-up, obviously you want to warm up, but all out, maximum effort, and then you're done, uh, you might go, well, you're crazy, Mark. How, how does that help me with a 10K or a, uh, or a marathon? Well, what it does is it, it works those com- completely anaerobically, which has its own metabolic um, – side effects that create the gene expression that builds power and, and strength and speed. But it also, it's working at the level of the, um, the structure of the, of the tendons, the ligaments, and the muscles. So you're doing a lot of work in a very focused period of time that allows you to spend, shall we say, less time on the ground and more time in the air if you're a runner, or uh, more efficient at, at pedaling through the entire barrel of the stroke. If you're a cyclist and you know what I'm talking about, um, you know, cyclist, the idea to, to become efficient cyclist is to be inside this cylinder that you're always trying to, to pedal out of. So you're pulling up on the top, you're, you're pushing forward in the front, you're pushing down on the, on the, on the downstroke and you're pushing back on the backstroke. You know what I mean? So you're not just hoping the pedals get over the top and then stomping on them, but you're becoming more efficient. Well, all of these things, whether you're sprinting as a runner or, or as a cyclist, and it works for swimming as well, uh, that sort of training is now preparing you for uh, that efficiency of the actual, uh, the actual work being done by the muscle itself. So not so much in terms of the, uh, the energy source, but in terms of the mechanical force that's being produced by that set of tendons and muscles. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so, I mean, I imagine uh, in the book, people can find out uh, how this all this training works together. Your peer, you, you lay out a periodization, a suggested periodization program um, in the book. And what I love about your book as well is that, you know, you give prescriptions, but it's not overly prescriptive. I think the overarching um, theme or idea in the book is like, you got to just like listen to your body, do what works for you. 
I mean, my goal here is to make people intuitive about their training. And so how we do that, or how I elected to do that, is through some education. This is how the body works. This is what's, what, what we've learned from the science in the past 20 years that we didn't know 20 or 30 years ago. Here's how we can apply it if we want to. But ultimately, uh, you are the best coach for yourself. And when you understand the ramifications of these choices you're making and you wake up in the morning and you say, well, how do I feel today? I had this plan, but if I don't feel like doing it, I'm okay uh, taking the day off. I don't have to feel guilty because I was supposed to go for a, you know, an easy 15-mile hike today or an easy 50-mile bike ride or whatever, but I don't feel like it and I'm, I'm, I don't feel prepared then great. Now you've become intuitive and wait till you're ready for it. And, per- and particularly true with a, with, a, with a sprint day, for instance. If you're not firing on all cylinders on a sprint day, don't do it. You'll, you'll gain more by taking the day off and resting than you will from slogging through a workout that may predispose you to injury or may set you back because uh, your immune system wasn't ready for you to dig that deep that day. Okay. So let's, let's go back to nutrition because this ties in, uh, ties in tightly with uh, the training because the goal with uh, primal endurance is you want to focus on aerobic training and that requires fat. It burns fat as fuel. So I imagine the diet we want is to, when we're training on the primal endurance way is more fat focused as opposed to carb focused. Yeah, correct. It's more healthy fat focused for sure. Um, But we, we look at, uh, you know, how do we what are we trying to do here? We're trying to force the body to make changes, to upregulate gene systems that will build a more powerful set of muscles that will allow us to be able to access stored body fat and burn it more efficiently. That means uh, building more, more mitochondria, which is where the fat's burned within the cells, making those mitochondria more efficient. All of this happens as a result of gene uh, genes turning on or off in response to the signals we this give This is them. epigenetics. This is epigenetics. And this is the key to everything we talk about in, the, in, in primal blueprint and primal endurance and everything primal, paleo, or ancestral. How do we harness the power of our genes through the epigenetic choices we make uh, with the foods we eat, the types of workouts we choose to do, the amount of sun we get, the amount of sleep we get, the amount of play we, we, we take on? Well, one of the strongest uh, sets of epigenetic um, regulators is food. And the very fact that we could eliminate or cut way back on carbs is a powerful signal to the body that, wait a minute, I've been, I've been relying on carbohydrates my whole life because you've been feeding me every two or three hours, and now you change the rules. Now you're cutting back on the carbs. You're not feeding me as often. You're feeding more, me more fat. I guess I have to adapt. And so the body upregulates these enzyme systems that are involved in taking fat out of storage. It upregulates those enzyme systems that are involved in building more mitochondria. The mitochondria have their own DNA. Those mitochondria respond by getting more efficient at burning fat. And lo and behold, over time, by having reduced the sugars and the simple carbohydrates in your diet, by having increased the amount of healthy fats and pretty much kept protein steady, uh, you have reconfigured, I say reprogrammed your genes to become a fat-burning beast, to make you a fat-burning beast, to make you able to access stored body fat um, on a minute-to-minute basis so that you don't have to rely on carbohydrate at every meal. You don't even have to rely on three meals a day. Most people who are who are in this space right now are doing some form of compressed eating window where they wake up in the morning. They're not really that hungry because they're so good at burning fat. They're, not, they're, not, they're literally not having fasted overnight because the body's been taking its energy from stored body fat. So you wake up, you're not hungry. And I, I say if you're not hungry, why do you want to eat? Uh, you know, you, you're, you're good at burning fat, become more efficient at burning fat. So a lot of these people who are doing this type of training don't eat until noon or one o'clock. It's what we call a compressed eating window or intermittent fasting. So they have their first meal at one and then they have their last meal of the day at 7 p.m. and starts that cycle all over again. But in between, in those uh, 18 hours in between, they're burning a lot of fat and they're training their body to burn fat. And that translates directly to how they access fat when they go out and do that aerobic threshold training. So it's a beautiful sort of reinforcement synchronistic system. Yeah, I love the analogy you made about the book about between carbs and fat um, with the power plant. Like carbs are coal, right? It's dirty. It can get the job done, 
but not not very efficient, not very clean. Whereas fat is more like solar power. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and solar power is unlimited, and and you know, fats are virtually unlimited. I mean, I think back to the original premise that we that we opened this discussion with, which is that for the longest time we thought that 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 what determined your success in a race was uh, how you manage glycogen. But when you realize that the body can only hold about 2,000 calories worth of glycogen uh, at any one time, and of those 2,000 calories, 400 sort of reserved in the liver for the brain, that leaves 1,600, and the muscles will never uh, willingly run out of glycogen completely down to zero. So maybe you've got you know, 1,200 calories accessible for this race that you're going to do. That's 300 grams total of carbohydrate. Well, your body, you can store, even on a lean athlete, uh, you can store 30 or 40,000 calories worth of fat, and in some cases more. Uh, and that's enough to, to, to jog easily 300 miles. Uh, big difference there between the, these two uh, sources of energy. So back to the more you can become efficient at burning fat, the more you can reduce your reliance on carbohydrates and, and this glycogen reserve that you have, the better you will compete, the less sugar you'll put through your system. And we didn't even talk about you know, the, the sort of devastating effects of a lifetime of consuming high amounts of sugar. Right. Uh, I mean, the, it's, it's terrible. I mean, like, I mean, you talk about some of it. Some of it's just it's fascinating what, what the sugar does to our bodies. Yeah, I mean, it's it's clear that uh, of the 35 million people that are either currently diagnosed or will be diagnosed with t- type 2 diabetes in this country, it's it's that inability to manage large amounts of glucose coming into the body, whether it's from sugar or whether it's from uh, even sometimes, quote unquote, healthy sources of carbohydrates like grains and whole grains or refined grains and things like that. So the uh, the excess sugar is very toxic to the body. The body does has a lot of ways of getting rid of excess sugar, which is another kind of red flag when people say, well, wait a minute, glucose is the preferred fuel of the body. If it were so, why would the body have all these mechanisms to limit the total amount in our bloodstream to uh, what amounts to a teaspoonful at any point in time? And uh, why would it allow us to to store unlimited amounts of this other uh, very efficient fuel that we call fat? Uh, Too much sugar is inflammatory, and that was one of my biggest issues with uh, with my uh, heyday of my of the training when I was consuming 700 to a thousand grams of carbs a day to be able to fuel my hundred miles a week of training uh, it turns out that that was very pro-inflammatory the, the just the pure sugar that was in the drinks and the and the sweet stuff that I was taking in but also in the form of uh, the grains that I was consuming I mean I found in my case that I had a big uh, issue with gluten and gluten analogs that exist in other grains to the extent that when I eliminated all the grains from my diet, um, the, the major source of inflammation throughout my body went away. And that was life-changing. I mean, the arthritis that I had in my feet for 30 years, that went away. The, the, the arthritis that I just recently started to develop in my early 40s in my fingers went away. And I thought, well, that's how could that possibly be? That's just normal arthritis, isn't it? No, it was completely related to the foods that I was eating. Uh, so when you see the the immediate effects of uh, reduction in pain from from inflammation, I mean, my IBS went away. That was a, a huge thing for me. So all these all these pain elements in my body went away uh, that were largely determined by inflammation. Uh, I started to think in terms of of the the late. The latest philosophy in heart disease, which is that heart disease is not a factor of of cholesterol and 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 saturated fat per se, but it's a disease of inflammation, uh, and it's really the cholesterol that's acting as a band aid within the um, the blood vessels that's that's caused by the inflammation that becomes the issue. If you don't have the inflammation, then you don't have the issue. And I thought I started to think, well, wow, that's Maybe all of the stuff that was obvious to me from the inflammation in my fingers, the arthritis, the IBS, um, you know, maybe I just dodged a bullet here because that same inflammation was happening in my arteries. And now it's, I can visualize that it's not happening at all because I, I, I removed those um, inflammatory offending ingredients. 
Yeah. And it's, I mean, yeah, you're right. During, I remember like during the, it was like during the eighties and nineties, the whole cholesterol fat is bad for you. And that's when the whole like low fat foods came out and were snack well cakes, fat free margarine. And now we're like, we have research coming out, even like the, I guess it's what health organization with the government is saying that, oh yeah, like that's what we said 20 years ago. You can ignore that. Well, I wish they'd say that, but they don't quite say that. They say, um, you know, maybe some of the research on saturated fat isn't as uh, overwhelmingly negative as we've been telling you for 40 years. So they're slowly backtracking, but uh, it's still frustrating to see the, the guidelines uh, at least by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the FDA and and uh, and the Departments of Health that are clinging to this notion that well we sh- should still limit fats to a very low number and we should still make uh, complex carbohydrates the base of our of our food pyramid. Um, yeah, it's frustrating. But so so the sum up we're what we said here: nutrition primarily you want to go fat. So we're talking about good fats here. We're not talking pounding pounding back. You know. Uh, state fair corn dogs and waffle. You <laughs> That's know. right. We're talking like yeah. avocados, olive oil. State fair con- uh, corn dogs. I like that. Yeah. No, we're t- yeah exactly. So we're we're eliminating the industrial seed oils. So we're getting rid of soybean, corn oil, uh, canola for sure, and all of these industrial seed oils that have been uh, permeating our food supply for the last forty years. So when you buy a processed food, which I hope you don't, check the packaging, uh, and if it has any of those offending oils. Don't buy it, but absolutely take in uh, avocado oil, um, uh, coconut oil, uh, butter, ghee, lard. Um, nuts. Lot, nuts have nuts. a lot of fat in it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and things like that. And then, and then um, grass-fed animals, if you're inclined to get your sources of protein from, from uh, animals, uh, either pastured chicken, uh, you know, uh, grass-fed beef, uh, line-caught wild salmon, things like that. And your carbs should probably be like vegetables. We're talking like broccoli, yeah, so, sweet right, potato. If, so you're not saying like, I mean, you do talk about in the book, you could go like no carb and go to like a ketosis, um, which is even like cleaner than fat, but you don't have to do that. You could- Right, you don't have to. And that's sort of the next level stuff that we talk about, the ketosis. And I'm giving a talk in a couple of weeks on on uh, ketosis and you know how as an athlete, you can use ketosis to your advantage. Uh, but it's a it's a commitment. Uh, and I'm not even spending that much time in ketosis, even though I'm a big fan of it as a tool for enhancing your ability to burn fat. I'm a, I'm a fan of cyclic uh, ketogenesis, which means you go into ketosis for a couple of days or a week, then you go out for a while. And when you're in ketosis, you're giving your body those signals. So it's, it's improving the efficiency of the mitochondria. It's doing a lot of good things. And then when you go, go out of ketosis, as long as you don't start cramming down, you know, sugar and, and increasing your carbs dramatically, you'll, you'll retain that metabolic machinery that you just built. So there's a way to, I was going to say, have your cake and eat it too, but I wouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> have your so, olive oil. Yeah, yeah. Well, have your, yeah. Have your, um, cheesecake or whatever, or not cheesecake. Yeah. Your, your, whatever. whatever. There's a way to, there's a way to do this and, and get the benefits of, uh, of all the, um, the tools of, and strategy that we're talked about here. You don't have to really commit to being in ketosis uh, for long periods of time or for the rest of your life, as some people I'm talking to are, they're so enamored of it that they're, uh, they're saying this is, you know, this is the way to uh, a really long life. I just, uh, to be honest with you, I just like to eat a, such a wide variety of foods that I don't want to eliminate so much from my diet that, uh, that my uh, gustatory pleasure is compensated for. <laughs> like gustatory. All right. Um, so besides the diet and the nutrition, what other lifestyle changes should endurance athletes make to perform better? You know, with a lot, a lot of stuff we're talking about in the book is um, find ways to move throughout the day. Every, every time you're moving throughout the day, you're contributing to your aerobic efficiency. So if it's um, a stand-up desk, uh, my, my, at my office, all my employees have the option to get a treadmill at their stand-up desk if they want. Uh, so th- some people are putting in eight, nine miles a day of easy walking while they're doing their work. Uh, but find ways to move, uh, take a, take a lunch break with, with your, um, work mates, uh, have a meeting on during a, a walking session. Uh, there's, this sort of the new thing among the, the, we work crowd and the millennials is having, uh, walking meetings. Um, let's see, uh, you know, I, I like, um, I get a massage once a week. Uh, I'm a big fan of deep tissue massage. So I get, a, I get, uh, get worked on, I get the kinks worked out. 
uh, get get sort of actively uh, stretched or passively stretched, I should say, um, in that process. Um, I like cold cold therapy, so I do a little cryotherapy. I have an unheated pool uh, every night before I go to bed. I might jump in the pool, spend uh, two or three minutes cooling down, and uh, then towel off and go to bed. And I sleep like a baby. Uh, sleep is another important part of our ability to perform better. We we only perform well when we recover and improve from our workouts. And sleep is that time at which the body is doing its its uh, greatest amount of restoration and, and repairs. So it's critical that anybody intent on improving performance manages sleep to the extent that they're getting you know, seven and a half, eight hours minimum per night. Gotcha. Well, Mark, this has been a fascinating discussion. Where can people learn more about primal endurance and the rest of your work? Sure. Uh, Mark's Daily Apple is my blog. Uh, written a, a post every day for going on 10 years now. Remember, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, primalblueprint.com is our e-commerce site where you can buy our books, get the endurance book there. Um, also, some of our uh, healthy fats. We've got a, a new uh, line of product called Primal Kitchen. So we have very healthy uh, mayonnaise, the world's healthiest mayonnaise uh, made with avocado oil there. Um and uh, yeah, just uh, you know, those two sites. The main thing you obviously buy Primal Endurance on Amazon and finer bookstores anywhere. So if you're interested in becoming a uh, better at performance, whether you're an athlete or not, um, it's a it's a it's a cool new strategy and technology. Fantastic, well, Mark Sisson. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure as well, Brad. Thanks. My guest today was Mark Sisson. He is the author of the book Primal Endurance. You can find that on Amazon.com, and also make sure to check out his website, MarksDailyApple.com. Lot of he's got tons and tons of free content on there about eating, primal living, exercise, etc. You name it, he's got it. Go check it out. And also make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash sisson. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is you use to listen to the podcast. And also tell a friend about us. Uh, that'd be one of the best compliments you could give us. Appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.